Well, I understand you're talking about Thanksgiving, and that's been your theme over the last couple of weeks, and so I want to be a, a help in that area as well, and we'll stay on that same subject. I'll invite you to turn to Genesis 39 with me, please. Now, uh, I preach the style of messages that I preach are expository messages. That's just typically what we do at our church. I am a pastor, and so currently we're on Sunday mornings in the the little book of Philemon, and we're studying the life of Joseph, actually, on Sunday nights, and we're doing the 12 disciples on Wednesday nights, and so just kind of expositional through the Bible, usually starting in the book, chapter 1, verse 1, going there, line upon line, precept upon precept, here a little, there a little, all of those things, but tonight I'm just going to give you a heads up, a little bit different message, uh, not necessarily expositional in its style, but I'm going to give you a, a biblical principle to build upon with this topic of thanksgiving. And so I hope that it will be a real help to you and challenge to you, uh, especially considering that you have heard this subject for four weeks now in a row. Not that we can hear it too much, honestly, uh, but uh, just a little bit different angle on the subject tonight that I hope will be a blessing to you. As we come to Genesis 39, if you're a student of the Bible, which I imagine that you are here on a Wednesday night, they were, we're right in the life of Joseph. Uh, Joseph is a great character in the Bible. In fact, if we would go around this room, I would imagine that many of you would, or, or some of you it rather, would say, Joseph is your favorite character. Uh, and uh, what a great type of Christ he was, what a great example he was. It's interesting to me as I study the book of Genesis, you would think that more information would be given to creation and the fall and that kind of thing. We get kind of about three chapters on that. You get 13 chapters on Joseph's life. So very significant character in the Bible. Genesis 39 happens to be the chapter where he is tempted by Potiphar's wife. And we're going to pick up our reading in verse 1, and I want to give you a principle from that here tonight. Look at verse 1, please. It says, And Joseph was brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, captain of the guard, an Egyptian, bought him of the hands of the Ishmaelites, which had brought him down thither. And the Lord was with Joseph, and he was a prosperous man. And you could pause right there. I mean, that is the secret to prosperity in life. And that's just having the presence of the Lord. And oh, that God would give us a desire to be near him and have him near us. He says, and he was in the house of his master, the Egyptian. And his master saw that the Lord was with him. It was evident in his life. And that the Lord made all that he did to prosper in his hand. And Joseph found grace in his sight and he served him. And he made him overseer over his house and all that he had he put into his hand. And it came to pass from the time that he had made him overseer in his house... And over all that he had, that the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. And the blessing of the Lord was upon all that he had in the house and in the field. And he had left all that he had in Joseph's hand, and he knew not all he had, save the bread which he did eat. And Joseph was a goodly person and well favored. And it came to pass after these things that his master's wife cast her eyes upon Joseph. And she said, Lie with me. But he refused and said unto his master's wife, Behold, my master wotteth not what is with me in the house, and he hath committed all that he hath into my hand. There is none greater in this house than I, neither hath he kept back anything from me but thee, because thou art his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And it came to pass, as she spake to Joseph day by day, that he hearkened not unto her to lie by her or to be with her. And it came to pass about this time that Joseph went into the house to do his business, and there was none of the men in the house there within. And she caught him by his garment, saying, Lie with me. And he left his garment in her hand and fled 
and got him out. I want to speak to you tonight about the protection of gratitude, the protection of gratitude. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I do pray that you'd help me to articulate the principles of your word, help me to uh, just speak what you would want me to say and just help in the way that you would want me to help. And I pray that we would take heed to this truth tonight, all of us. And I pray our life would be characterized by gratitude and we would receive the protection that comes as a byproduct of it. And we'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Again, Genesis 39 deals with a very familiar story in Joseph's life. If you're a student of the Bible, you're familiar with this. You may have heard it many, many times in Sunday school and preaching and etc. What we know is that Joseph had just received a promotion to power and influence. He was elevated because of his hard work ethic. Again, you kind of see uh, his uh, spirit about him, that he was not a complainer. He wasn't sitting around complaining and griping that, man, how did this happen to me? He really had this spirit of gratitude, and as a result, he threw himself wholeheartedly into his work, whether it was in slavery, we'll see later when he's in prison, and et cetera. He was just always doing what he was supposed to do and grateful for the opportunity for it. And as a result, he was elevated. He was promoted. And he says there several times, everything that is my master's has been given to me. He said there nothing that my master has is kept from me except for his wife. That is it. Everything is in my power and in my control and my management. And what's interesting is you see this promotion to a position of power and influence. And, and soon right after that, he is tempted uh, in this area of fornication with Potiphar's wife. Now, that's a reminder to us of this thing right here. Often, a promotion to power and influence is kind of the setting for temptation. Uh, that's why I believe Paul said this, and this is a great verse as well, Philippians 4.12. I know both how to be abased, and I know how to abound. See, what he's saying there is, listen, I know how to be abased and be grateful. And, and by the way, I think that it's a little easier, to be honest with you. Sometimes when nothing is going right for you, and you're struggling along, you just kind of make good of it, and you do the best that you can because there's nothing else to do. But the truth of the matter is, is when you abound, that's when a lot of people are ungrateful. I just say, look at America. I think prosperity is really our biggest undoing. America is unraveling because of itself. And America is unraveling in a lot of ways because we have so much. And it's a reminder to us that when everything is going well and you have been promoted to power and influence, that's when you better look out because that's when temptation can really grab a hold of you. That's why Paul said again, I, I know how to be abased. I, I've been there. I, I've been at those low points, and I know how to do that. But he also said, I've learned how to abound. And the truth is, is we haven't always learned how to do that. And, and, and again, it's also learned behavior, because Paul said in the verse previous, for I have learned in whatsoever state I am there, in, there was to be content. And so it's a learning process for him. Now, Joseph, again, is a great example of how to deal with temptation. That's really what the theme of this chapter is. We see there, we read the verses where she laid a hold of him, and we see that he, he practiced the New Testament admonition to flee fornication, didn't he? It uses that word, he fled. I mean, he literally came out of his coat and ran. I love what one preacher said. He lost his coat, but he kept his character, and I like that. That's a good statement. And so Joseph is dealing with this, and that's what this chapter is about, uh, how to deal with temptation. And there have been many, many powerful sermons preached about here's how to deal with temptation, here's how to face it, here's how to overcome it, Here, here's how it was battled. But, but I want you to see in verses 8 and 9, before we examine Joseph's technique in dealing with temptation, the Bible allows us to have some insight into what he was thinking 
Look what he says in verse 8. He says, he refused and said in his master's life, Behold, my master wotteth not. He doesn't know uh, what is with me in the house. Meaning, he just turned it over to me. He committed all that he hath to my hand. And so here's what he's doing. This, this is the stressing of his thinking. In verse 8, he's, he's just kind of emphasizing how much he had been given. He said, look, look at all I have. There is nothing withheld from me. It's all at my fingertips. I've been given so much, he says in verse 8. Then he says in verse 9, he says the opposite. He says, there is none greater in this house than the other. Neither hath he kept back anything from me but thee because you're his wife. And so first he stresses how much he had been given. And then in this verse he stresses on how little he had been denied. He's basically saying, look at all of this I have. And so here's the principle tonight. The principle is this, is to emphasize what I lack over what I have, we could call that sinful. To emphasize what I lack over what I have is a sinful attitude. In fact, let me, let me point it out in the Old Testament again. In the book of Genesis, we know that God said, hey, all the trees of the garden you can eat from freely. There's just one tree that I don't want you. If you ever, I mean, I know some of us are thinkers and stuff like that. Some of us like maybe have a stronger rebellious streak than others. I mean, anybody ever go, well, why? Well, why can't we eat of that tree? I've come to a really solid theological conclusion as to why God said you couldn't eat that that tree. Because he said so. (laughs) He's God, and he said, I don't want you eating from that tree. And that's what I'm saying, and you're going to trust my authority or you're not. And and, and I want you to think about it. That's how Eve was tempted, and it comes to him. Hey, God doesn't, he's holding out on you. He's not going to let you eat that tree. Instead of seeing all that they could eat, they saw the one thing that they couldn't, and it led to their demise. And, and, and I'm just pointing that out again. It's kind of our nature to be that way, isn't it? Man, I have all of this, but I can't have that. I mean, if, if you don't see it in your own self, just hang out in the nursery a little bit. I mean, you ever seen a little kid, and they got all their toys around, and they got all these toys, but some one other kid in that nursery has a toy that they don't have. And what's the one toy they want? The one they can't have. It's in our nature to emphasize what we lack over what we have, and that's a sinful attitude. So what I'm saying to you tonight in this theme of thankfulness is one of the greatest deterrents to temptation in our life is that word there, contentment. Contentment. Now think about it. We live in a culture that cultivates the opposite in us. I mean, we could could give a, a bunch of illustrations on this. Think about all the commercials and advertisements that show you exactly what you don't have and what you have to have, right? I'm, I, I don't know about you, but I struggle with uh, uh, ADHD, if you want to call it that. I mean, if there's a TV on, I mean, I'm like, like a uh, moth to the flame, man. I mean, I, I, I want to watch it, right? I mean, I, I've tried to lead people to Christ, and they wouldn't turn the TV off. And I'm trying to lead them to Christ answering Jeopardy questions, you know? I mean, like I, I can't, I, I just, it's hard for me. And so, man, you go in these restaurants, and, and uh, man, there's TVs everywhere. And some of my children have come by that honest. And I remember one time my oldest daughter, she's 21 now, we stopped. We were traveling somewhere. We stopped in a restaurant, and there were TVs everywhere. And, and I, I'm telling you, I don't even think she was 
I think she was probably about six years old, something like that. And there was an infomercial on, some kind of mopping device or something like that. And, uh, you know, something you just have to have to clean your house because, man, I'm telling you what, nobody's ever cleaned their house before until you, you got to have this, right? And I remember we were sitting there and my, my attention was probably on a ball game somewhere. And, and, and I remember my daughter just spoke and she said, Dad, we got to get one of those. <laughs> if you don't think that stuff doesn't work, you're, you're kidding yourself. Uh, we live in a marketing world. In fact, how many of you have ever been to Times Square before? Okay, a few of us have. And Times Square, I mean, what is Times Square? It's just basically one giant commercial, an advertisement. And people go there just to say they've been there and they've seen the commercial. I mean, we could go on and on and on about all this stuff. I, I was preaching somewhere, and I, I, I rented a car recently, and I always just get the cheapest thing available. But, man, they, they gave me this upgraded nice truck. I mean, it was a brand spanking new Toyota Tacoma. It was nice. I took a picture of it. I sent it to my wife. I said, I have truck envy. She said, come home now. You know? I, I mean, it's just we're, we're constantly being bombarded in ways saying, you don't have this, this is what you need. And that's just really setting us up for a lot of failure. You see, most people value what they want more than they value what they have. And that's a problem. So here's the thought tonight, real simply, and I won't keep you very long, but real simply, we must keep wanting what we have. We must keep wanting what we have. So get, let me just give you some thoughts. Again, we're, stra- we're taking the principle from the text, and I'm just giving you some practical thoughts tonight. I want you to see this. I want to give you three areas where gratitude provides needed protection. Three areas where gratitude provides needed protection. Number one, gratitude provides protection in our marriages. I understand not everybody sitting here is married, but please tuck this away Uh, in the memory bank, uh, please tuck it away in your spiritual life, but gratitude will provide protection in your marriage. Understand this, the beauty of marriage is the vulnerable exposure you give yourself to knowing that there is a serious commitment. You say, what what do you mean? I know that was a mouthful, let me explain it this way. 23 years ago, I asked my wife to marry me, and uh, uh, she said yes, and now she's stuck. So in a a temporary moment of insanity, she said yes, but she's not getting out of it now. See, that's the vulnerability of that relationship is we a long time ago decided no matter what problems we have, we weren't weren't going to uh, uh, look for any other way out. We were going to work our way through. And that's the blessing of the marriage relationship in a lot of ways. Because basically in marriage retreats and things that I've done, a lot of times I like to do a lesson that if you're going to have a good marriage, just be a good friend. And so if you go to the Bible and study everything that, that uh, uh, the Bible says about friendship, you'll have a stronger relationship. Now think about this. Somebody said this about friendship. A real friend is someone who knows you and still loves you. And, and I know you don't know me very well. You, you just met me for the first time. And some of you are thinking like, well, he's going back to Anderson. Good. You know, I mean, like, uh, that's fine. But my wife here knows me better than anybody in this world. And last time I checked, she still loves me. She may have changed her mind on the ride up. I don't know. You have to ask her afterwards. But a real friend loves you and, and even knows you. And, and, and so what I'm saying is since you know your spouse better than anyone else, 
Here's the danger of the vulnerableness of the relationship. You know their faults better than anyone else. See, it's easy for me to come in and, and maybe put my best foot forward and be as nice and smiley and friendly and all of that, and you see a little snippet of my life. And it's easy to do that on social media, isn't it, too? You put your highlight reel out there, and everybody's like, oh, man, look how awesome they are. and what they. Hey, but listen, the people that live in the four walls of your home, they know exactly who you really are, especially your spouse. And, and, and the danger in that, and you've seen this if you've done counseling and so forth, the danger is that people start, they start seeing the warts and the flaws a lot easier than anybody else, and that becomes a point of contention and a point of temptation. So everyone has the dangerous potential to look at what they are not instead of what they are. And that's why you see sometimes in marriage trouble, well, the grass sure looks greener on the other side. But I like what one preacher I heard say. He said, the grass might be greener on the other side, but it might be growing over a septic tank. And so you've heard that advice. Actually, the grass is greener where you water it, so, so get busy. See, temptation comes when you emphasize what your spouse is or isn't. Over, you, you emphasize what she's not or what he's not over what they actually are. And so what I'm saying to you tonight is teach yourself to meditate and praise on what they are instead of dwelling on what they are not. Listen, when I've dealt with people that have some trouble in their life, I try to remind them that whatever it was, whatever it was that caused you to select that person out of the now 8 billion people that are on this planet, you said, I love you so much, I'm going to spend the rest of my life with you and you alone. Whatever it was that caused you to say that way back when is still there somewhere. But over time of difficulty, it's easy to see what they're not instead of recognizing what they are. And so I'm telling you, gratitude can be a great protection to temptation in your life in this area of marriage. Let me give you the second thought tonight. Gratitude provides protection in our minds. Protection in our minds. Uh, I'm talking about it can protect you in uh, yourself. Now, I'm not talking tonight about self-esteem. Maybe we should call it self-respect. I think usually just about anything you put the word self in front of is a bad thing. But I do think there needs to be a level of self-respect rather than self-esteem. And it bothers me, quite honestly, how many Christians have bought into the psychology of our culture. And so self-esteem, I hear a lot of Christians even say, well, my kids just say have low self-esteem and so forth. But really, if you look up the word esteem, it means to admire, worship, venerate, revere, and adore. And so if you're a, a venerating and adoring yourself, that, that just really causes a lot of trouble. And basically, to have self-esteem means you worship your own person. And you and I both know that people with high self-esteem, they seem to have low self-control because they always view themselves as numero uno. And so I found the higher someone's self-esteem is, the lower their regard for others is. But I would say this, though. We're talking about this matter of gratitude and contentment. Henry Ward Beecher said this, A proud man is seldom a grateful man, for he never thinks he gets as much as he deserves. Now, I think there's truth to that. It's very easy for us to, to fall into the trap of thinking we deserve more than what we're actually getting. I deserve more attention. I deserve more praise. I deserve more money. I deserve more promotion. I deserve more than this. 
Listen, on my way up here, I ran into some traffic. I felt I deserved everybody to get out of my way. Didn't they know I was coming through? Does anybody else feel that way? I mean, everybody ought to know I'm coming through at this time of the day, and they just need to move. You understand we just, the proud man is not a grateful man because he always thinks he deserves more than what he's getting. Now, I'm talking about self-respect. Somebody who understands that they are fearfully and wonderfully made has a measure of respect for themselves and other people because they know and understand that they were created by God. So we have a Christian school at our, at our church and our ministry, and I teach 11th and 12th grade boys' Bible, and we're basically dealing with some apologetic things in our culture because the, many of our students are going to go out and go to secular university and college. And again, I'm not, always, I'm not necessarily endorsing that at. I'm just pointing out the reality of it. And so I want to make sure that when they go, they're equipped for these things that, that uh, they're going to be facing in the world in which we live. And so a lot of what we talk about centers on this principle that we are all made in the likeness and image of God. Because from that stems a lot of the problems of what are going on in our culture. And so the reason I'm making that a point is I'm trying to say is we, we, need, to, we need not elevate ourselves higher than we are, but we need to recognize who we are. And the point I'm trying to make is we talk, we talk about things like abortion and euthanasia, etc. The reason we value all life, all life, no matter where it is or where, you know, whether it's in the womb or out of the womb, whether it's old or young, rich or poor, whether the quality of life is what you esteem it to be or not, is we look at somebody and we say they have value because they are created in likeness and image of God. But that's what comes back to this idea that gratitude, proper gratitude, will protect your mind. Because if I understand that I'm fearfully and wonderfully made, that I'm one of his creation, I'm not a higher evolved animal. I'm a creation of God. I'm created in the likeness and image of God. And I understand that because I have worth in the sight of God, simply because I'm a human being, then so do you, and so do you, and so do you. And that gratitude for the life that God has given me changes the way I interact with other people around me. See, the point I'm trying to make is we, can, we live in a media-driven society and the image that the media is painting about people is not always healthy. And again, I, I would submit to you that social media has brought more negative aspects to our culture than it ever has brought positive. Why? Because it's easy to look at somebody else and see what they have, see where they're going, See what they're doing and say to yourself, I deserve that. How come I don't have that? It's easy, Brother Dietrich, to look at another ministry and go, oh, man. Did you see how many people they baptized? And they're always talking about how somebody got saved. Well, why why didn't that happen in my church? It's very easy for us to look at somebody else's life and Really, unfortunately, we're just looking at their highlight reel. We're not looking at really what's going on on the backstage thing. But, but again, it's easier to look at everybody else and say, well, they're, they're younger, they're, they're thinner, they're fuller, they're tighter, they're stronger, all of these things, and say, why don't I have that? I guess I'm asking the question, are you content with who you are or are you obsessed with who you are not? Because if you're obsessed with who you are not, then the door to temptation is wide open. I wonder how many teenagers have looked and thought, well, I'm, I'm not as attractive as what this world says we should be to be attractive. And so they gave their purity, they gave their body to try to find the affection and love of somebody else because they were not thinking clearly. They were not thinking in a grateful manner. 
I I wonder how many people have gotten into the drug and drinking culture. Why? Because they wanted to be somebody else. I wonder if why I wonder if so many people in our world today, and we the church needs to be careful about this stuff. I wonder if why so many people are struggling with gender dysphoria is because people are always looking at what they are not or who they are not instead of who they are. I'm just trying to tell you tonight that I think being grateful. You please understand. I think you understand what I'm saying to you. I'm not just saying, well, that's just the way I am. If the way you are is sinful, then that needs to change by God's grace. But in some ways, this is who I am. This is who God made me to be. And I want to be the best me that I can be and be content in that. And that's going to save me from a lot of temptation in my life. Let me give you the last thought tonight. Very simple, very practical. Gratitude provides protection in our ministries. It provides protection in our ministries. You know, if you're not careful, you can do this same thing to a man that God has ordained to help you and has helped you time after time. If you are not careful, you can do this same thing, meaning emphasize what they are not over what they are. You can do the same thing to a church that has met your needs time and time again. You see, it happens when we look at maybe our pastor and say, man, I sure wish they were this, this, or this, instead of seeing what they are. I think you could do that to your church. Man, I I, I was thinking about this today. Um, The Lord's blessed me. I'm thankful my journey's been different. I know some some, uh, pastors, they come and they preach in the same place, and they're there for uh, 40 years, and that's all they ever know. They love the same people and the same flock and the same church. And, man, I say praise God for that. That's something to be honored and to appreciate. That's not the journey God's had for me. I pastored a church in eastern North Carolina for nearly nine years. It was a wonderful season of ministry. God then led me to pastor in California. And I pastored there for nearly three years. Now, some of you think, California. You know, California gets a bad rap. It really does. There are a lot of wonderful people and devout, serious-minded Christians in California. And God blessed our ministry there. But there were some challenges and things that we faced there that you wouldn't face here uh, or someplace like North Carolina. And then God brought me back here to South Carolina. I've been at Oakwood Baptist Church in Anderson, South Carolina for seven years in January. So seven years is a good time of ministry. On the way up here, we were listening to some things, I I, I was rather, and and they said that 80% of the pastors that start out pastoring don't make it 10 years, 80%. I don't know if that's true or not. I don't know how you always quantify that, but I know there are a lot of men that don't make it. And so I've made it seven years in the same place. What that means is this. I've been there for approximately 364 weeks which means that I've had over 1,000 services, close to getting close to 1,200 services. If I say 3,000 words a sermon, that means I have spoken approximately 3.2 million words to the same congregation. Many of those words. I mean, 3.2 million, you'd agree, that's a lot of words. Some of you say, yeah, I know, it's been too many tonight. I, I, I get you, I hear you. You ever said something dumb in three point? Okay, all right, I'm glad I'm not the only one. I think every pastor that's ever pastored goes home on Sunday night and says, why did I say that and why didn't I say this? 
wasn't terribly too long ago. We were sitting around in our living room after church on Sunday night, and my kids were laughing, and they said, Dad, do you know what you said tonight? I said, well, who knows what I said tonight? I didn't know you guys were listening, you know? They said, Dad, you were preaching away and you were talking about, you said, you were trying to say that God would not, in the Old Testament, under Old Testament law and code, God would not allow lepers into the camp. I said, yes, I remember talking about that. They said, yeah, but Dad, you didn't say lepers. You said God wouldn't let leprechauns in the camp. I said, I didn't say that. That's ridiculous. Why would I say that God won't let leprechauns? I didn't say that. I looked at my wife. I said, did I say that? She said, that's exactly what you said. <laughs> now, no doubt, out of 3.2 million words, I've said some silly things. I've, I've gotten my words transposed. Uh, uh, I've, I've done all kinds of things. I've misspoke. I, I've said what I shouldn't say. I, I left out something I should say. But I will say this, in 3.2 million words, many of the words that I have said have been used to edify God's people. Many of the words that I have said have been to educate God's people in his word and in his truth. And many of the words that I have said have been used to exhort God's people. But you know, you and I both know that in a town like this where there are many churches, the buckle of the Bible belt, the first time that you don't say what pleases someone, they tend to say bye-bye. Why do people do that? Because many times they emphasize what you are not over what you are. Man, you can protect yourself if you just decide, man, you know what? I'm grateful that I have a pastor that faithfully preaches the Bible. I'm thankful that I have a pastor who, who if you stick around in his church... Well, any length of time, you're going to kind of figure out the weak spots and the soft spots of somebody's life. You are. And I don't mean that in a bad way. It's just true. I remember one time I had a guy in my office. He was a friend of mine. And he looked at me, and we were having a little bit of a disagreement. And he said, Pastor, I'm going to tell you what right now. I love your preaching. He said, you are one fantastic preacher. He said, I love your preaching. I listen to you preach all day. He goes, but sometimes I'm just going to tell you right now, I do not like your attitude. I said, okay, all right. And my wife says, amen, right? We do the same thing to our churches. Man, a church that over the years has provided preaching and good music and fellowship and opportunity where the people of that church have, have called and, and visited and written and, and, and purchased things for the first time that something is unpleasing to them. Well, I'm going to have to find another church. You know, I was thinking about that. I was thinking about the, the, this sermon today. I was, I was just kind of going over my notes, and I was thinking years ago there was a, a family in our church, and I remember, I distinctively remember this, that our youth director bought a new car. And he had this old used car, and it had a lot of miles on it, and it was all this and that. But he decided to give his car, instead of trading it in or trying to sell it and get a few bucks for it, he decided to give it to one of the teenagers from this family. I don't know about you, but, I mean, somebody will give you a car. I mean, that's kind of, that's kind of all right, you know. I mean, that's kind of all right, isn't it? Do you know that family, not too long after that, they left, and this is what they said. Nobody in this church ever done anything for us. I could have listed dozens of things that people had done, and I wanted to grab him by the lapels and shake him like, dude, we gave you a car! 
does that happen? Because you look at what it's not instead of what it is. I'm just trying to tell you, if we can cultivate the attitude of gratitude in our life, it's going to protect us from a lot of things. Let's wrap this up. Would you turn one place with me? Would you turn over to Hebrews chapter 13, please? And by the way, I just gave you three. I think if we went around this room and thought a little harder, there are a lot of areas that you could think that gratitude would protect you from. Now, I imagine you guys want to go home at some point, so let's just stop on those three, and you can be grateful for that, right? But if you turn over to Hebrews chapter 13, there's a verse that, that you, you know. You've often quoted if you've been saved for any length of time. But I think that because we tend to emphasize a certain part of the verse, that we miss miss a a tie to our subject tonight in the verse. Look at verse 5, Hebrews 13 and verse 5. Let your conversation or your manner of living, right, be without covetousness. Here's the key. This is what ties us to what we've been talking about tonight. And be content with such things as you have, right? I mean, that's what we've been saying all night long. Stop looking at what you don't have. Be grateful for what you do have. But here's the verse that we quote, here part of the verse we quote all the time. For he has said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. Come on, church. I believe this is a mature crowd on Wednesday night. How many of you have at least one time in your life quoted, he will never leave you nor forsake you? How many of you have quoted that in your life at some point? It's, but, but how many of us have connected the context of that passage to contentment? You know what? Basically, the author of Hebrews is saying here, he's saying the thing that you need the most you will always have. And so often we sit around and talk about what we don't have. But the very thing that you need the most is the Lord Jesus Christ. Without him, you'll die and go to hell. Without him, you won't breathe your next breath and your heart will not beat its next beat. Without him, you have no provision. Without him, you have nothing, friend. But yet sometimes we complain about all that we don't have, not recognizing the one thing that we need the most we will always have. So let me ask you tonight, what is your biggest area of discontent? What is your biggest area of discontent? Because if you can answer that question honestly, then you can recognize the weakest point of temptation in your life. If your biggest biggest area of discontent in your life is your spouse, You can mark it down. That's going to be your biggest point of temptation. If you are struggling with self-respect, you're a prime target for compromise. If you are struggling with your church or your pastor, I would say maybe you're a prime target for apostasy. The list could go on as the subjects are included. I I want to conclude with this this illustration, I, I like history, and uh, many of you that have studied history know the name George Patton, one of our more famous flamboyant generals in our history. And if you know anything about George Patton, you know that he was a very egotistical man, very egotistical. And 
you know, for him to be in control, to uh, lead and order men, and to be victorious in battle and those kind of things, it was a big deal to him. And so he was uh, a general, of course, in the World War II era, and he wrote in his diary on November 25th, 1944, this was Thanksgiving Day in 1944, and what had happened is he had just recently lost command of 240,000 troops, and he had been relegated to command of only 5,000. So remember back what we said about Paul? I've learned how to abound, and I've learned how to be abased. I've learned in whatsoever state I'm in, therewith to be content. Well, George Patton hadn't learned that. Because he went from commanding 240,000 men to 5,000 men, and this is what he wrote in his diary. One single entrance on Thanksgiving Day, November 25th, 1944, this is what he wrote. Thanksgiving Day, period. I had nothing to be thankful for, so I did not give thanks. How could a man say that? Because he was looking at what he did not have instead of what he did have. I just want to submit to you tonight, as we enter into the holiday next week, let's stay under the protection of gratitude. Let's stay under the protection of gratitude. Because there's no telling what it will save us from. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would just use the message, the truth, the encouragement, the challenge, the exhortation, the edification to help your people tonight. And I pray that as we enter into the Thanksgiving season, that we would be just constantly reminded to be grateful for what we have instead of focusing on what we don't have. And I pray that you would protect us as a result of it. And I pray it would be a lesson that we remember not just in November, but throughout the entire year. And I pray that you'd work in our hearts and our lives to appreciate our, our marriages, appreciate our, the lives that you have given us, and appreciate the ministries that you have blessed us with. And I pray you'd help us. And it's in your name I pray.